What's the naughtiest thing you ever did? Um, I, well, I suppose the... Gosh, I, do you know, I'm not quite sure. There must well, have been a moment. Nobody is, nobody's ever perfectly behaved, <laughs> are they? I mean, you know, I have to confess, when me and my friends sort of used to run through the fields of wheat, um, the farmers weren't too pleased about that. Strong, stable, strong, stable, strong. Hello and welcome, if you're still awake, and Compost Mentis, to a special Romaniacs post-election post-mortem. Uh, that was Strong and Stable Clouds, a mashup of the Orb and Theresa Mayers created by Chris M. on YouTube. And that will probably be the last time you ever hear the words strong and stable. I'm Dorian Linsky, and with me to discuss what the 2017 election meant for Brexit. He's been up all night to get lucky, and he's too legit to quit. <laughs> it's Ian Dunt. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Ian? Uh, tired. Um, I just sort of, I've gone through some quite extremes of emotion over the last 24 hours or so, and now I'm at sort of the more negative end, because minutes ago, Theresa May basically came out and made a statement saying she's going to try and form a government uh, with the DUP. So, you know, we've gone from having this massive, I think, quite liberal left-wing vote being made uh, to having a tiny, hard-right, homophobic spiteful, nasty party wagging the dog of the government. Well, there's my buzz killed. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also with us, uh, Peter's away, it's Naomi Smith, uh, fervent Remain campaigner and former Lib Dem parliamentary candidate. Hello. Uh, how did you spend election day? I spent it in St Albans uh, campaigning for Daisy Cooper uh, to try and get the Lib Dems into a really strong second place, which they did. Um, and, you know, lots of people saying, oh, if only a progressive alliance had been able to get its act together properly, if only there had been a bit more time, then perhaps, you know, there really wouldn't have been anything close to a, a kind of government that, that uh, Theresa May would be able to form. Um, as you say, yeah, it's probably more coalition of crescents than coalition of chaos right now. Mm. There's a lot to talk about. We're going to jump straight in because even though the main parties did their, their most not to talk about Brexit, it was sort of the, the dog that didn't bark, the result is a hung parliament and that has massive ramifications. So I sort of know the answer to this because I read Ian's piece, but Ian, is hard Brexit dead? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the headline of the piece was hard Brexit is dead. <laughs> so, well, this I, is it. But I was trying to like little suspense. So, well, here's the, okay, so let's, let's I think, just try and break this, break this down. This is still a much better position than we were in you know, 36 hours ago. Um, however, it remains to be seen how brave she wants to be. What would a real leader do right now? They would obviously say, I asked for a mandate on my plan. My plan was hard Brexit. It was outside of the single market, outside of the customs union, and done in this incredibly aggressive way towards Europe, done in this very divisive way at home. That has been flatly rejected. If she asked for a mandate on it in order to proceed, this result means that she did not get it. So it is intolerable, democratically intolerable, by virtue of her own logic, that she should be allowed to continue in the way that she is doing. Any real leader would say, I'm going to reach out now. We have some kind of cross-party uh, forum in order to deliver on Brexit. That's how we keep to the timetable. We maybe ask for a delay of a few days and that's it. She hasn't done that. She came out and did a speech today, which was, I mean, I just, you know, I, I, she constantly surpasses expectations. The, the, the speech she did at the... Last October in the Tory party conference was, I just thought, one of the most vicious, appalling speeches I'd ever heard a British prime minister make. Basically saying to anyone that has an international mindedness that they're not British was, was really what I took as the executive summary of what she was saying. Then, during the election, she comes out of Downing Street, says this abject nonsense about the Europeans, you know, interfering in our election. And that, I thought, was just the most embarrassing speech I'd ever heard a prime minister make. This speech today 
was just the most ludicrous speech I've ever heard a British Prime Minister make. So she's, like, that's the hat trick, right? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. In a way, she at least keeps things interesting. I mean, it, it, how dare she just act as if the election never happened? She called the election, and now pretending, you know, just to brush it under the carpet. So is hard Brexit dead? It seems to me, I mean, she may come out and make a big offer. It seems to me like what she's going to do is just try to push ahead with where she was, not least because the DUP won't accept anything but hard Brexit themselves. I mean, they're even more lunatic than the Conservatives are. So even though I did write that piece earlier today, I'm no longer entirely convinced of the conclusion. I mean, it was supposed to be an entire general election about Brexit, and then it wasn't. Mm. And the whole thing focused on domestic issues. But actually, the outcome probably has a great, you know, a far greater impact on Brexit than, than any of us would have thought. And, you mm. know, I, I would agree. I mean, obviously, Northern Ireland is an incredibly interesting question. It always was uh, during Article uh, 50 negotiations. It was always going to be what Dublin was going to be OK with, because as, as we all know, you know, the EU's 27 have to agree. It's not it's it's consensus politics. It's not that, you know, there's a sort of simple majority of, of EU leaders that get to vote on something. And Dublin was probably never going to be happy with any kind of hard border and things like that. So having having, you know, Uh, let's not forget the DUP are as fervently Brexit as the UKIPers but they're not secularists this is a highly religiously motivated Protestant nationalism Mm. Um, and and you know Arlene Foster has sort of said there'll be never be a a poll on uh, on a United Ireland in my lifetime and and things like that so I mean the Northern Ireland question uh, in in Brexit is going to be you know, now even even more potent than it ever was going to be. Now, because it was framed initially as a, you know, Brexit election, and then it sort of wasn't that kind of drifted in and it, into the background. And when people were interviewed, it sort of came in forth after other issues. Does that mean that it allows people to spin the result sort of however they like? That if it had been clearly, if every day Theresa May had been going, I want a mandate for hard Brexit, then this result would clearly be a rejection. Can they kind of spin this? Not from her side, because she she made it perfectly clear she wanted out single market and customs union. She wasn't going to talk about any of the other details Mm. of how she planned to do it. But in terms of the final outcome, that's what she made clear. The bit where you can spin is what the hell Corbyn's policy even was. You know, I mean, he basically supported hard Brexit in the manifesto. But in the speech before it, Keir Starmer was saying, well, we try to stay in the single market by reforming freedom of movement. So what's obvious, I think, let's imagine that the Tories hadn't taken those SNP seats and actually there was enough space there for some sort of deal to be done with progressive parties. Then I think a bunch of options open out. You might have them say, well, look, we could maybe not freedom of movement, but freedom of labor, or maybe it would be tolerable to have a seven year emergency break on it. And that kind of thing is the beginning of a conversation where the single market membership could still be possible. However, you know, we're not there and they're going to basically try to paint. You can already see the outlines of the Brexit case. They say, number one, this was fundamentally about personalities. Number two, Labour supported hard Brexit. So all of these votes are basically hard Brexit votes. We know that's nonsense. We know that if you get a great swell of young people voting in cities, (laughs) these are not hard Brexit voters. And yet, of course, they're desperately trying to save the project now that it looks at its most vulnerable that it's been, you know, since since the result came in last year. And and who's going to be, you know, negotiating? Who's, Who's in a sort of strong position. I mean, the recklessness and complacency and hubris of just before you're going to negotiations, calling an election, not even considering the opportunity, sorry, the possibility that it might weaken your hand is staggering. And I saw today a rumour, I'm not sure how kind of confirmed this is, that David Davis was was pushing very hard for the snap election. Mm. So it's not just May's judgment that's been sort of exposed. It's his as well. 
And yeah. so in terms of like, I mean, I don't know what the European, you know, the, 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 the other 27 are going to be looking at these clowns. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not going to be thinking, oh, these, these are going to play hardball. <laughs> and and, and, and the, the bad judgment didn't start with that, right? It started with Cameron calling a referendum in the first place. You know, mm. he was being reckless with, with uh, our membership of the European Union then. You know, Theresa May says, I'm all about hard Brexit, triggers Article 50, then has a general election. I mean, you know, the, the, the judgment is just so poor. How can we... Be confident to, ha- to have somebody negotiating on our behalf who has clearly got such appalling judgment. And I think that's the question that everyone's going to be asking. Uh, you know, and the EU27 will be laughing at us. We, there, there are some good things that have happened now from our scenario. So we might as well sort of quickly sort of <laughs> touch on them. The first one is, if they'd pick someone else to try and push ahead with the same agenda, that would be a more dangerous situation. If it was David Davis or, you know, even Boris Johnson or something, that would be more dangerous. Because they would be an unknown quantity. It's perfectly possible that the public would, you know, have another honeymoon period with them. Instead, we've got the, the Brexiteers have rallied around Theresa May. Now, she is utterly damaged. I haven't spoken to a single journalist, no matter anywhere on the political spectrum, that thinks that she should be doing this. I haven't spoken to a single Tory in private who thinks that she should be allowed to continue. I mean, in private, they're all just like, how is this even happening? So she seems utterly, utterly broken. I mean, she's, she's, she's done good. She's, she's no use to anyone. And yet she's the only one they've got right now pushing it forward. That's very, very weak. And if that, her, you know, if, basically, when her fragile little deal with the DWP falls apart, which will probably be in a few months, actually, we're in quite an interesting position because if you suddenly go into another general election, we've had more time for Brexit to kick in. We've had a more sense of a momentum with an alternative. That puts us in a better position than we were in before. I think the other thing to mention is the fact that suddenly a bunch of stuff is being talked about that had basically been censored off the record, was unallowed for the whole of the last year. Suddenly you switch on the radio today, you're hearing about the single market, you're hearing about the customs union. All of those debates are alive once more. There's an opportunity. But I do think it's impossible for us to say that this was a Remainer thing. This was not about Remain. What the argument can be is this can be about soft Brexit. Well... I mean, where I wonder if it is a little bit about Remain, and I'm kind of interested what, what Naomi thinks, is this, this sort of theory, I think Matthew Paris said that this was young people's revenge on the old for Brexit, and that if what has made the difference, which is what it appears to be, is you know, phenomenal uh, youth turnout, is that because one of the big stories from last year was if young people had turned out to vote, Remain would have won? I mean, I'm going to be really interested to see what the breakdown of turnout was, because if you remember after last year, originally they said all the young people didn't turn out and then it was all revised. And actually the youth Mm. turnout did. It was considered about double what you would generally expect at a general election. With snap elections, turnout is historically low. They don't get big turnouts. And that's definitely not what we've seen last night. We know that turnout overall was incredibly high. What remains to be seen is whether or not that's young people. Now, what happened certainly with Trump and what happened with Brexit was the activating of voters who don't normally vote. And that's why the polls were so you know, wrong uh, sort of throughout those campaigns, although sort of right at the end seemed, seemed, to, be, seemed to be right. I mean, obviously, I think, you know, we, we were all expecting Brexit. The, the polls were inferring leave, but, um, but that changed at the end. So I think uh, what, what's always interesting is whether those are one-off voters that come out for that one issue mm. or whether they come out again. So I would, I would hope, hope, hope that young people did turn out in their droves. And I'm not entirely convinced it will have been totally about an internationalism remain thing. 
because I was saying to myself this week, if young people don't come out and vote now, when the UK has the highest tuition fees in the world, when the housing crisis is so appalling that social mobility is going backwards, that they are never going to have the, the same living standards as their parents, if this doesn't turn them out to vote, nothing will. I think Remain is a part of that, but I don't actually think it was the whole story for them. We also I mean, need to have a brief thought about, it looks like, you look, you look at the Lord Ashcroft polling that came out this morning on it, it looks like about a quarter of the people that supported Labour were voters and it also looks like you know some of that the when UKIP support broke down it went a couple of ways mostly it went to the Tories but some of it went to Labour as well and they were winning in those leave seats we cannot deny that that was something that happened it's a minority of Labour support it's just a quarter but it exists and it is there and, and we can't deny that it is there we can't deny that the manifesto was clearly a manifesto that supported Brexit you know. and, and Labour voters were more likely to vote Remain than even Liberal Democrat voters last year so, yeah, 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 that's fascinating as yeah. well. I mean, you, you, we simplified things so much in the past, but, you know, you see the same <laughs> with, like, SNP voters. So many SNP voters basically just want to kick the hell out of the system, and one of their ways of doing that was Brexit, another way was independence. So, look, I mean, we can't deny that that's there, and, and, and it seems to me like there's an opportunity now. Everything's being recalibrated, and there's a chance for people who are critical of Brexit to go, look, we accept the result, we demand a more moderate interpretation of it, and everyone has to come up to their own conscience on how that goes. It's easy for me to say, because I really like EFTA and the EEA, and I'm not that keen on the EU as a thing. I, I see the problems with the EU. So it's easy for me to say, well, look, I, it's, I can set down on that. Lots of my colleagues, lots of the people that I've been having, you know, that I've been going to these campaign events with for the last year, were people who had a commitment to the EU itself, you know, that that was where their identity was. It's a completely different thing for them to give up on that aspect of it, even though they're keeping most of the practical aspects of it. So I just think that's for each person to decide. But I have to say, realistically, I think it's an easier case to make at this stage if the argument isn't about a second referendum, it's not about rerunning anything, it's about you need a more moderate interpretation of this, you're alienating the young, you're alienating Scotland, you're alienating Northern Ireland, creating all these problems. We demand a soft Brexit and something different. I think that's a much easier case to make but again, it's up to everyone's conscience whether they feel they can do it. And I wouldn't berate anyone if they don't. One thing that I was going to say was that when I think about Brexit and taking away people's EU citizenship in, you know, in, the, in the history of Britain, I can't think of a time when such a fundamental right was taken away from a people without a war. You know, this is taking away my citizenship. I have EU citizenship to take away my free movement of travel across the continent of which we will still belong, even if we're out of the European Union, is actually enormous. And so, you know, I'm not, of course, not advocating war, but I do think that the democratic, <laughs> the democratic <laughs> process muscle, well, you know, <laughs> desperate times. Um, uh, but, you know, people flexing their muscle at the ballot box around this is, is you know, sort of close to, closer to that you know saying this is something that's been taken away from me and mm. i'm feeling disenfranchised about it i've got no sense of agency over it i'm young i want to be able to travel i want to be able to work abroad etc etc and and so you know i'll be really keen to see how much um you know post-election polling shows that, that that young people were voting on that basis and wanting to you know reclaim their eu citizenship even if you strip away the brexit stuff it's the young making a statement that this is their country still you know, these are just people that have just been completely ignored for years and years and years while pensioners get utterly protected from austerity, triple locked on everything they care to choose. And finally, the youngers come out and go, you know, on housing, on education, on welfare, we're just getting shafted. And not only that, the young people's perception of the world, of being open, of being comfortable with immigration, of embracing diversity, has been completely whitewashed by, and not just whitewashed by Theresa May, but libeled. 
You know, I mean, it was treated like you're some kind of traitor if, if you happen to be comfortable with someone with a Frenchman coming from overseas to build houses. To be a citizen of the world is a citizen of nowhere. Exactly. What an egregious statement. I'm exactly. proudly a citizen of nowhere in that case. It's just so toxic and, and vile. And now suddenly you see a statement of a different kind of country coming up. And if it can be partly that the young, you know, have policy priorities directed towards them again, that's good. But also if it's just about making a statement that as a country we are not this mean-spirited and this small-hearted and this inward-looking as we've been portrayed by the Prime Minister for the last year, then that alone is something to be very, very happy about. And that demographic is the one that will kick against a DUP trying to reverse gay rights, trying to reverse women's rights. Mm. I mean, you know, this is a an anti-abortion, anti-equal marriage you know, deeply religious group of people um, who are now the only people Northern Ireland will be represented by in Westminster because last night, SDLP, UUP, no no MPs whatsoever. We've got Sinn Féin who don't take up their seats and the DUP. So poor old Northern Ireland and, you know, and the very mm. many decent people in Northern Ireland being represented, uh, you know, by people that really, really don't represent their views at all. We're going to have to do a show at some point just on the DUP because they are just such a poisonous, nasty collection of people. And now that they have true influence and executive power, I think we're really going to need to break down, you know, what, what these guys are about and the kind of damage they can do. Uh, the HuffPost described their manifesto as basically the Bible with fortnightly bin collections. <laughs> <laughs> I can do the voice too, so I can because I grew up in Belfast. So if you want me to pretend to be Arlene Foster, that's no bother. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, it's uh, time to talk a little more about the most hilarious Prime Minister of modern times, <laughs> Theresa, <laughs> the, the accident-prone Theresa May. Um, how will history regard her, her sort of inglorious reign where does she stack up says what, she, what she's managed to do is make david cameron look good which was astonishing really because he just looked like the most spectacular buffoon by the end of that having called a referendum he then came out on the losing side of and then his pathetic attempts afterwards to pretend oh well you know the country needed this debate the country didn't care at all about the eu it was very very low down everyone's priorities he's now divided you know friend against friend family against family and yet she somehow managed to make him look good. She's had one year out of just total arrogance caused a completely pointless election after she's triggered Article 50. So the time is ticking down on our sort of national well-being, our, our quality of life, and then proceeds to basically, you know, lose her majority entirely. She is, she's worse than a joke. She's just so utterly, catastrophically rubbish. I don't think I fully have the vocabulary to describe it. Naomi, say something, say something good about Theresa May. That's your challenge. <laughs> One thing. She's not Boris Johnson and David Davis. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't. I, I agree with Ian. Come on, what? I mean, how? Talk about snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> if we wind back eight weeks, everyone was talking about Tory landslide. Tory landslide. Will it be a three-figure majority for Theresa May? You know, it's it's over for progressives in the wilderness. It'll take three general elections to get rid of the Tories. And she's managed to do that. I mean, what was really interesting was was looking at hers and Jeremy's uh, approaches to campaigning, right? So she introverted, hated doing it. You could see that it was sucking the energy out of her. She wasn't enjoying it. She was getting more and more tired as things went on. Lots of unforced errors. And, and we can talk about her management style and why those came about. Whereas Jeremy came alive 
very much extrovert. He was feeding off of the the attention in the crowds, which to me makes his performance in the EU referendum campaign all the more egregious. This is somebody mm. who comes alive when they believe in the campaign that they're doing, whether it's his own leadership campaign, his own Save His Buck campaign in the re-election for leader last year, or or, or now in, in the general election campaign. You know, he he was not a man who was in campaigning spirit during the EU referendum. So personally, as a Romaniac, I'll find it incredibly difficult to forgive him for that. So I think that was very telling. Um, but no, it's, it's pretty difficult to say anything um, positive about Theresa May at this stage. Sorry. The funny part is most Remainers, most critics of Brexit have known this about her for a year. You know, when she comes out last October and says, makes the speech at the opening of the Tory party conference rather than the, the end. She announces the Brexit plans. She basically rules out freedom of movement, which kind of everyone could see coming. But it did, of course, mean, right, we're out the single market. And then, out of nowhere, she says, well, also, we're not going to be under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. Now, that was a whole... I mean, there's almost no aspect of Brexit that you look at where you can satisfy that requirement. You're obviously going to have, you know, a body looking over any kind of future trade deal, an independent adjudicating body. You need it for EU citizens. You need it for a variety of areas. Then she has the gall to come out and go, well, I'm not going to put my, I'm not going to show my cards. You think I'm bad at poker? You think that statement you made on, on the European Court of Justice was showing your cards. That just piled red lines on you, limited your room to manoeuvre. It, stra- it was strategically utterly inept. And anyone who'd been paying attention at that point recognised right then and there she was not a clever person. Yeah. But and it's a, here we are. It was amazing to think how early on, you know, when she took over, maybe because, you know, she wasn't Andrea Leadsom or... Boris or Gove, mm. there was there was so much talk about how she was kind of boring, but you know, competent and quite smart, and even in some ways sort of more progressive. And there seemed to be a kind of degree of like Margaret Thatcher fan fiction, just like <laughs> maybe she's the new Iron Lady. <laughs> and like, no. if you went back and read those pieces now, you you would think they were deranged, like the absolute collapse and the idea that somebody who is that bad at campaigning that they actually seem to physically yeah. loathe but- being with people. But would call a snap what, election where that's what you do. But that's why you should never have a coronation. That's why election campaigns for selection for leader are so important because you get to see whether or not they're a decent campaigner or not. You need you get to see what they're going to be like. It's, it's like a mini run of how they're going to be in the general election. And so when Ledson pulled out and, you know, it was all sort of shoo-in and, and, and she was there um, and, and we weren't going to get the Tory leadership election that we were all uh, expecting, none of us, you know, got to see what she would be like in full fighting spirit. Well, well obviously we missed out on the Tory leadership election then, but... We may be in luck, and there'll be another one. <laughs> um, and last night, I was trying to work... We were having a conversation and trying to work out who, who it might be. But almost as soon as names came out of your mouth, it was just like, oh, like, yeah. either not them, or it couldn't be them. But then I hadn't heard of Andrew... I hadn't really heard of Andrea Ledson before yeah. that whole brouhaha last year. So, you know, I'm wondering, should we be looking beyond the... The obvious. The obvious. And you know what? Maybe we could. The stuff is always chaotic and the person that you most expect to get something never gets it. I mean, Boris Johnson shows all the signs of being the classic Hesel time. Mm-hmm. Tiller, so, you know, talked about for years, never, never gets there. Yeah. I have to say, I mean, I'm fascinated by where the hell Philip Hammond is. I mean, maybe by the time that this <laughs> thing goes out, they'd have found him. Philip. Where the hell is he? <laughs> He's just disappeared. Liam Fox popped up out of nowhere last night. I hadn't seen him for about two months either. It's quite astonishing, really. And I don't think you could go... Hammond seems to me the most likely choice. I mean, extremely tedious and grey. But, you know, he's, he's made 
some sort of claim for independence on Brexit. So if it's a question of reaching out across the aisles, he would obviously be, be a leading candidate for that. Amber Rudd, who's a much more intelligent, much more liberal figure than she would look for anyone who's just been following her for the last year, where she's been turned into the sort of Theresa May authoritarian meat puppet, has nevertheless, you know, lost all of this majority. So she's in real trouble there because you can't really pick a leader with with just sort of, you know, a, a few dozen votes to her name. That's no good. It's, you know, like spending two grand on a telly and then hanging it up with a string. I mean, you just, you can't do that. It doesn't work. Well, if there's another election soon, yeah, the idea that your leader, that the prime minister has like that wafer-thin majority. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, you can't even consider it. And then David Davis seems like a, a sort of an obvious... Answer. I mean, he's got some support from sort of the Farage side of UKIP. I mean, but and he is a real believer in that stuff. But crucially with all of these. And so there is a silver lining on it. None of these guys are true believers on the nativist stuff. You know, David Davis, he's pro-immigration. Boris Johnson, pro-immigration. Amber Rudd, pro-immigration. These guys actually understand those economic arguments. They'll talk all the, you know, horrific anti-immigration stuff, but they actually don't mean it. They're more in the David Cameron, George Osborne mode. Unlike Theresa May, who was a proper true believer in that stuff and would have happily sabotaged our economy if it just meant that we had less foreigners here. Has anyone seen George Osborne's front page today yet? I'd be very interested to see how he goes on this. Yeah, heavy. yeah. You know, he's basically been trolling yeah. Theresa May for the last he was month since he's been in post. <laughs> you know how nice it is to just watch someone be really happy? <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he was just so happy. And I, I shared his joy, I have to say. A despicable man though he is. I mean, I have to say, I was smiling with him. But I love the whole the idea that he sort of turned the evening standard into a constant kind of feud with, with Theresa May. <laughs> There is a certain joy to that. So Osborne appears to have done the old uh, magazine trick where you put out four different covers for completists to collect. <laughs> so you could, you could have May hung out to dry. Sad. May's Irish bailout. It sounds like a drink. <laughs> May's right royal mess. And Queen of Denial, which is which is the best. Could he just not decide? It's not as if there's any extra news. And he just loves it. he loves it so much. He goes, "Can I just keep doing these?" And they go, "George, normally we don't. Normally we have one." He's like, "But can you stop me?" They're like technically, no. So he's just going to keep banging them out every time someone comes up with a good pun. He's like. Do another cover. Someone um, did a screen grab on Twitter last night of just a picture of his smiling face and it just said, find a girl who looks at you the way that George Osborne looks at exit polls. <laughs> <laughs> so um, talking about the other parties, for, for Remain voters and, and Labour voters, is it, is it weird to feel this happy over what is technically a loss? <laughs> like it's sort of like if it feels like this to lose, what does it feel like to win? Yeah, I mean, we can only imagine how beautiful that would be to actually win something. But nevertheless, just shifting the terms of debate alone, a chink of light, a chink of opportunity to change the terms of debate, that alone just gives me an incredible amount of joy given how utterly bleak the last 12 months have been. It's going to be really interesting to see, um, you know, what discussions are happening. You know, what what are Labour going to do now? You know, very, very interesting. You know, six weeks ago, it was sort of lots of chat about whether Labour were going to split. Jeremy Corbyn can't possibly lead us to any measure of success. You know, he, he has had a pretty good night. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see uh, what conversations happen in Labour. Similarly, you know, Lib Dems perceived to have underperformed. This was supposed to be a Brexit election. If they can't come back now, when can they ever? But, you know, they sort of seem to have nearly doubled their number of MPs. Uh, Tim Farron was nearly a Tory scalp. He managed to, to cling back on after a recount. Doesn't look like he's going anywhere. 
um and uh, you know uh, they've they've they had i think something like 40,000 members join uh, since the referendum um will those 40,000 members hang around Will they decide actually that they're better off nailing their colours to the the Corbyn mast if he goes for a soft softer Brexit and mm. and and you know I, I think there's going to be so much playing out over the next uh, few days and weeks in terms of realignment of politics. But you, yeah, that window has shifted. I think I I agree with Ian that there's there's more more hope that things can be dragged towards the 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 Remain perspective because it's weird because if you look at vote share, you know it does seem to be back to two parties. You know, that, that so many people that yeah. might have gone for Lib Dem, passionate Remainers, you know, friends of mine that a month ago were going, I can't vote for Labour because of their line on Brexit, because of what happened in Corbyn's performance last June. I'm going to vote Lib Dem. And then something happened over that month. And I think there's that, there is that kind of tribal thing which seemed to kick in when they were like, mm. suddenly like, what am I thinking? I'm, I'm Labour. Mm. Yeah. And it seems that the Lib Dems could have expected to do yeah. better. I mean, the, the general election was called to at a time that was always going to do absolute maximum damage for the Lib Dems. So if we sort of rewind to coalition years, decimating the activist base, councillor losses year on year, 2010, 2011, 2013, you know, wipe out practically of our MEPs in 2014. And then obviously, you know, uh, having gone, uh, you know, disastrously wrong in 2015 and losing over 50 seats. In many parts of the country, for the Lib Dems, their councillors were their activist base. So by the time you get to 2015, you have annihilated their infrastructure. So they've got nothing. They haven't got delivery networks. They haven't got people on the ground. Mm. Um, so for, for Tim Farron, a 2020 election was going to give him five years to totally rebuild. They'd won the Richmond Park by-election. And remember, just before the general election, we thought we were going to have the Manchester Gorton by-election, where it was looking very strong for the Lib Dems there. I think if they could have had that drumbeat of... They picked up a by-election in Richmond Park. They picked up a by-election in Manchester Gorton. Then you would have started to see people going, oh, OK, OK, maybe they're back in town. Maybe maybe this is it. Maybe uh, Tim Farron can be some kind of Charles Kennedy figure that, that you know, really speaks to this lovely internationalist, open, tolerant voice, all the rest of it. Um, but, you know, bang, in comes this, uh, this general election. And, you know... UKIP gets squeezed away to nothing. Lib Dems face heavy squeeze. But, you know, they have picked up seats like Oxford. They have got Vince back in in Twickenham. So it, it's it, it's not as disastrous as it could have been. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, for one, is certainly I'm going to welcome some kind of progressive alliance. Uh, and I'm really grateful to the Greens. I mean, Tim Farron owes his seat to the Greens. Do you, uh, if do the Greens you hold- hadn't stood down there, they I think they had sort of double the number of votes in 2015 that his majority now is. Do you think he should take any of the blame personally or do you think it was just circumstance we need to get rid of this you know awful awful line around you know whether or not gay sex is a sin i mean that has been disastrous for him uh you know young people that would ordinarily have voted lib dem back when you know they weren't in favor of children fees <laughs> uh, could have been tempted back through europe stuff but you know you say stuff like that and repeatedly and not having a decent answer to just close it down quickly will have hurt them. But actually, I mean, I, I think that the blame actually much more lies with the Orange Bookers and with Nick Clegg and David Laws and the people that uh, were the, the masters and the architects of uh, reneging on tuition fees and 
you know, supporting um, Tory slash and burn on the welfare state, top-down reorganisation of the NHS, all of that throughout the coalition years. I mean, the, the Liberal Democrats were the opposition to Conservatives in most of their seats. So their voters felt so aggrieved by coalition. It was always going to hurt the Lib Dems so much more. So, I mean, I think I think it, it, it is really unfair to blame Farron beyond, you know, some awful gaffes around gay sex and things like that. But, I agree. But... I, I, I agree with that. And, and I think it's true that that tuition fee stuff just still isn't gone, as you can no. tell by the reaction of some Labour people to him, to Nick Clegg losing a seat. But I'd quite like to just say one nice thing about Nick Clegg, because I don't feel enough people do. And my experience of him, I don't know him particularly well. We've met a couple of times. My experience of him is that he is one of the only politicians I've ever met who doesn't look fundamentally emotionally broken up close. Like most of the time you chat to them, there's something in the eye, there's something in the way that they look when other people aren't paying attention to them. You just think, oh, you have quite a fractured personality, actually, and that's why you're in politics. I don't see any of that in Nick Legg at all. He's a genuinely nice person. I saw with the coalition and the variety of other issues, including how they pushed for reform of drug laws at the Home Office when, when he was in coalition, that he was just someone who grappled with complex problems, was instinctively liberal in all scenarios. I mean, even when they'll bring up stuff about smoking in the car with a child, his instinctive response was not the classic left one. It was actually what I'm quite wary of interfering in people's liberties in that way. He was a good old-fashioned liberal, seemed full of conviction, seemed genuinely to want to do the right thing, even though I didn't always agree with him. And since Brexit has campaigned and fought hard on the details during report after report after report, trying to get that kind of debate out there, just committed to what he's doing. And then the final part of that is whenever you see his wife, and if you can judge a man by his wife, then my God, he's brilliant, because she is fantastic. You sort of dream of her being, you know, the wife of the Prime Minister to set that kind of example in no, a way No, 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 Samantha you Cameron dream of wouldn't. her being the Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she's the leader the Liberal Democrats you know should have had. I, I completely accept that. That's quite right. I would absolutely love that. But just as a, as a thing, I just, I've, I've found Nick Clegg tremendously impressive and I think it's very very sad that he lost a seat it was it was by far the worst thing that I saw last night and I'm quite irritated when I see Labour people celebrating it I think he deserved much better well talking of tremendously impressive people that we're sad about Paul Nuttall we're gonna gonna miss him as as a sort of presence on the scene as the court buffoon uh it's just a, it's just quite remarkable. I heard of a very good argument that basically that Nigel Farage had the right package of qualities to make acceptable fairly far you know, clo- you know, right wing views that would not you know for people who would not vote for the BNP, mm. and it was packaged in a way he could say some incredibly noxious stuff because his, of his class because of his sort of manner. And then when Paul Nuttall comes out and says those things, they just go, oh, he's, it just seems a bit BNP. It's such a and that there was a kind of weird class prejudice at work, which he was just, I mean, apart from the fact that he's, he's copeless, like he was also not, he's not the acceptable face of what UKIP were trying to do. Isn't there a canny way of doing this as well? You know, that you can introduce ideas with a certain kind of language that makes them seem less pernicious than they are. And also knowing where the level, where the limit is. Remember when Theresa May brought out those go-home vans with dreadful monstrosities? He was one of the first people to come out and go, no, no, we don't do that in this country. That's all a little bit Gestapo. I don't believe that he believes that, by the way. I think he would happily have those vans anyway. Uh, You know, he basically, I think is, you know, pretty far out there politically, as you could tell by the way he was pushing the envelope with Le Pen when he thought there was a chance there. But unlike, say, Katie Hopkins, he knows where to draw the line. He knows where not to go. So he keeps it just within the level while constantly pushing that window a little bit further all the time. He's quite a canny operator in its tone, its language, but it's also the ideas themselves. 
guys don't think that there isn't going to be a strong swathe of people filling the court buffoon jester role <laughs> if the DUP are mm. helping to form the next government. I mean, these are people who are, are, are honestly completely crazy when it comes to some things. <laughs> So there was a, a moment last night after the exit poll when I was at the New Statesman Party and it was full of, obviously, people who know a lot about politics and nobody could explain what was going on or what was going to happen next or how this happened. And it was like the kind of nobody knows anything election. And just for fun, this morning I listened to uh, a rival podcast um, <gasps> from, from yesterday which I catch up with an election podcast. And it was already like... This weird sort of relic where they're, you know, strongly mm. predicting, I mean, with regret, but strongly predicting, you know, a firm Tory majority. I remember when the YouGov poll came out that was seemed very optimistic and constantly everyone I was reading and listening to was going, well, this is an experience on the doorstep. Mm. Uh, you know, my uh, everywhere I was getting my information basically seemed to be wrong. So therefore I was wrong, but I'm blaming them. Um, and I'm just I just wonder what this means for sort of uh, not, you know, not just some of the polling companies, but now for for commentators that that we had. It was just a given six weeks ago, say, that Labour was in, you know, was in massive trouble yeah. and that Corbyn wouldn't make advances. You know, whether you supported him or didn't support him, that was this consensus. And then it's just. And it's the third time. I mean, it's the third time that I've seen something something on a TV screen that has just sat me on my ass. You know, the first time was that 10.01 exit poll in 2015. Second one was when I woke up to the Brexit result, having confidently, you know, been WhatsApping all my friends before. Oh, mate, don't worry about it. It'll be 55% remain. You'll be absolutely fine. And now suddenly this. And the answer is surely this is a period of churn, of changing loyalties of changing demands politics is being realigned i mean you look at the map right now the further north you go the more conservative it becomes that's not just the weirdest possible thing you could say we're in a period of intense change it's about identity politics it's about economics it's about desire to kick the system it's about a feeling of people feeling lost as the world globalizes and wanting to draw back to older forms of identity that's sometimes religious sometimes racial sometimes national all of that's happening right now. And I think we're all, in terms of methodologies and just in terms of assessment, we're all trying to catch up. And I suppose this is what it's like when you're in a historical moment, that you can't base things on past experience. That's what a historical moment is, change. And we just can't refer it back to what we know before. And I suppose that's why we keep on looking at such mugs. Well, there were certain things that I thought were, were a given. And I, there, was a, there was a point that Matt Iglesias from Fox made about US politics, um, which I felt was very applicable here as well, was that if you were of a certain generation, you sort of grew up on, you know, on the on the left as I am, you grew up with a sense of what was possible and the limitations and the obstacles. And the obstacles would, for example, include, you know, the right wing press and scare mm. stories about tax and going back to the 70s and bodies lying unburied in the street and so on and so on. And the whole new Labour project was obviously dealing with that sense of like, well, we can't do everything we want this is what we're going to have to do. And there was a mixture of kind of you know, triangulation and compromises, which, which worked because it kind of defused a lot of those, those obstacles. Um, and he was, Maglesius was saying, but actually a lot of younger voters, you know, they didn't grow up with that sense. They have a greater sense of, of what is possible. possible. So they were able to go into this uh, election, for example, 
with just much more optimism because they didn't have the memory of like, oh, right. You know, they weren't constantly being, I mean, you know, they weren't constantly thinking, well, you know, Michael Thurt. <laughs> oh, ah, but look what the Daily Mail going on about the IRA. You know, that all of these things that if you're older, you kind of think, oh, those things have worked in the past and they could work again. And so there is this quite exhilarating sense, I think, of things that you thought were impossible might be possible and things that you thought were just like monoliths in the political landscape might be more fragile than you thought. God, that's a lovely thought. It's <laughs> 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 just really nice. It's just like, I really hope that's true. <laughs> One thing we haven't talked about is uh, is the prospect of more referendums or not. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, <laughs> and firstly, does the uh, SNP's relatively poor night mean that the a second Scottish independence referendum, which was of course one of the big negatives about Brexit, and people thought, does this mean the end of the United Kingdom? Does that mean it's off the table for for a long while now? Well, I think if Theresa May wants to look at how to run a Conservative election, she should look no further than Ruth Davidson, who I think had mm. a good night. It was two totally different elections. The election north of the border bore very little reflection to the to the south, and you know, looking at li- Liberal Democrats sort of gaining two, three seats in in Scotland, um, fantastic. And I think you know, even for anti-conservatives like me, I think we can all be a little bit Tory curious for, for Ruth Davidson. You know, she, she says the right thing and, and I certainly fell a little bit in love with her during that Remain debate uh, last year in Wembley. Um, so look, yeah, I think I think, uh, I think think Scottish independence has, has been set back for sure. Are we going to have other referendums in the rest of the UK? Are we going to have a second referendum on Europe? Who knows? I think Europe and the UK have had a fudged relationship for 100 years plus. I think it's highly likely that some kind of fudge is going to continue. It's looking like negotiations aren't going to start in 10 days time necessarily. An extension on that, then, you know, an extension on on a pause on on the Article 50 countdown, extend negotiations a bit longer. We're then going to see changes of governments in other EU countries. Obviously, we've got the German elections at the end of this year, etc. I think it's highly likely that we sort of end up in some kind of extended fudge, fudge, fudge. And then at some point, somebody turns around and says, shall we just stay? That's not beyond the realms of possibility. I was struck by how many Leave voters that when they get very, very cross... Uh, as they want to do, where there's some like, like, look, we've decided it. Like they're, they're so cross. It's like I went to the polling station, I did the thing, I said leave, and now we're leaving. And then you just go, well, you know, but there's this, this, and I said, I said we're leaving. Like someone, like so, like, a, like an overbearing husband, like leaving a yeah, dinner yeah, party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said we're leaving. <laughs> and of course, that's that's sort of not how it works. And the idea that there might even be another vote on this down mm, the line mm. is not as implausible as I thought it was. EUF2, hashtag. God help us all. (laughs) Okay, it's time to wrap up the show, but we can just tell you quickly about how our first couple of podcasts have literally set the internet on fire. Tom Champion on Twitter says, I bloody love these guys, keep it up. Laura Cloudswatch, which is an amazing name, also on Twitter said, love this new podcast, though I'll maybe have to learn to laugh more quietly with the presenters while listening and walking along the street. Meanwhile, great stuff from a wrestling podcast called Wrestling and Chill says we are genuinely the worst fucking podcast I've ever heard in my fucking life. So there goes the wrestling vote. Oh, well. So that's the end of the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our special guest, Naomi Smith, uh, who you can find on Twitter at Pimlicat, as in a cat from Pimlico. 
how are you are you planning to recover now decompress from the election i definitely need to catch up on some sleep uh and get some blister plasters cracked open uh and yeah and take stock and gear up for possibly a second general election later in the year well this one was fun why not do another (laughs) <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky. You can follow me on Twitter at Dorian Linsky. That's with a, an EY at the end. Uh, and I'm Ian Dunt. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ian Dunt. Uh, and you can even follow the show on Twitter as well. Um, I am so tired I can barely focus on the words that I'm trying to read. Uh, and that is a Romania at Romaniacs Cast. Um, also, you can subscribe to Romaniacs in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search for Romaniacs. And you can listen again and download at audioboom forward slash channel forward slash Romaniacs dash podcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week for more Ramoni. Au revoir tout le monde. Romaniacs was presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky. The producers were me, Matt Hall and Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. 